Hello and welcome to Everything Interesting Under the Sun. I'm your host, Ethan Clark. Today we have the adventurous Alex Joachim joining us. Alex is a fascinating individual. At the young age of 21, he's already amassed enough life experiences to last many lifetimes. Now I'll save myself the trouble of trying to summarize any of them because that's what he's here for. So let's get into it. Here is my conversation with Alex. Welcome, Alex. It's good to see you again. Last time we spoke, you passingly mentioned to me that you were part of the circus for a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. Aside from you, I've never met anyone that has any experience with that. Can you tell me about what led you up to joining the circus? Absolutely. Uh, it, it really takes meeting the right individuals. Not everybody is, does circus, you know. Um, but we see it a lot when we're growing up, you know, some of us go to Cirque du Soleil and some of us go to different events where we see people doing incredible things with their bodies, balancing acts and strength acts, acrobatic acts. And I've always kind of been interested in that, but I never got the opportunity to really uh, experience that uh, until I met this girl. Her name is Chuchi. Uh, and she, I met her when I was in college. I was a, a rock climber. And she did aerial silks which is a, a form of circus art. It's an, an apparatus, if you'd say. And I got to experience this apparatus. She told me she was gonna move to Vermont and go to circus school, this uh, program called NECA, New England Center for Circus Arts. They have a three-year program where you go learn a specific apparatus in circus, whether that is uh, aerial silks, trampoline, partner acrobatics, trapeze is one of the most common things you'll see people do in the circus. And you get to specialize and really learn how to maneuver your body correctly and form, not hurt yourself, and also have teachers there to correct anything that's, that's wrong. It was an amazing program. She told me this two weeks before she was actually leaving to go to Nepal. She's just like on a whim. She's like, you want to move to Vermont with me and go to circus school? And I said, yeah. Everybody told me I was absolutely nuts. My mom, and you know, my mom, my brother, my dad, they're like, what are you doing? Don't, don't drop out of school to go join the circus and go do circus school. But I, I fell in love, you know. It was an amazing experience to go learn what your body's truly capable of. I had no previous experience with physical circus arts other than, you know, rock climbing is kind of, it's not necessarily a circus art, but it's physical. Getting into hand balancing and, and really feeling what your core is to your body, what your arms and your legs do when you're, when you're twisting in the air, how everything has to coordinate. And it really taught me a lot of what I'm capable of doing. And it really brought a lot of self-confidence. And it really pushed me to try and be like the best person that I could be. Circus was an amazing opportunity. I only did it for six months before COVID hit. Uh, and New England Center for Circus Arts actually shut down and I had to quit my job. I was working in hospitality at a restaurant. And from there, I actually ended up moving to Alaska. This girl who I met from college, who I moved to Vermont on a whim with, was also from Alaska, and she trained and taught sled dogs. Her mother was Susan Butcher, who's a four-time Iditarod champion. 
she was one of the first only first and only women to win the Iditarod four times. And her daughter and her husband and her other daughter, Tekla, all live there in Alaska and work with sled dogs still. Fortunately, Susan passed in 2006 to leukemia, but the, med, the business is still there, Trailbreaker Kennel, um, and they're keeping her memory alive with the sled dogs. Uh, there's definitely a lot to unpack there. Absolutely. Let's begin with the circus. You said, uh, what was it you said you did? Aerial something? Yes, aerial silks. What exactly is that? Can you explain that to me and then to people that don't know what that is? Yeah, so aerial silks is if you've ever seen, oh, it's just a rope hanging down from a ceiling. Imagine that rope is instead a silk sheet and it's split into two lines. So you have two line sheets of silk coming down and you... It's about 30 feet up and you climb and maneuver up the the silks with your body climb uh you know it's a lot of upper body strength um and then you can do incredible drops where you are 30 feet up and roll forward and and doing incredible things where you, you twist and contort your body that just doesn't look human it's really cool and i wasn't very good at it at first but i really liked the the aspect that even if I was failing, I kept trying and trying and trying to get it right. And she, the, Chuchi was there, she was actually training me how to do the different techniques and different forms in silks. I will say, it's not my, my apparatus. And when I was in the circus, I did more trample wall, uh, trampoline wall, which is literally just jumping on a trampoline, doing flips, jumping off of a wall, doing flips. It was a lot of fun to just twist and do crazy stuff. Mm. Then we did uh, Chinese pole, which is a, it's kind of like a stripper pole, but it's it's made with uh, a rubber instead of a metal, and you have specific shoes that you use to climb up it, but it, you've, it's very monkey-like. Even when you're, you're climbing your structure, you really have to embody a monkey, and it, one hand and one opposite foot at a time, when you get up there and you're at the top and uh, you wrap yourself over the, the line or over the bar and then you drop and then you tighten your body right at the end to close that gap and you drop 30 feet right there at the bottom and everybody's astounded. Wow, how do you do that? But it's pretty easy. You just re- you know, re- release the tension, make the tension and you drop that 30 feet. You said it was pretty easy. Yeah, I mean... It- doesn't sound pretty easy. It definitely is not something I think I would ever try. It, sound, it is very cool, but it's just too adventurous for me, man. But so, um, the sorry, could you tell me again? It was an aerial, what was it? Aerial silks. Aerial silks. Like, I, I definitely have seen that before in like a Cirque du Soleil kind of thing. Yes. And that, every time I see that, I'm like, wow, this is just amazing. And like the fact that people can do this, it must take insane amounts of upper body strength. There's pure control of your body. And, Obviously, you are a rock climber. You have that, and like I, to be everything on the table. I remember when we went rock climbing. I was horrible, and I like you and I were kind of bouldering together, and uh-huh. I was doing a little boulder route, and I was failing like twenty times. And you come in there, and you just do it like it was nothing. Kind of put me in my place. I'm like, I don't know if I belong here anymore. I might have to leave. <laughs> but no, it was just, it was a good time. But um, so yeah, from the circus, you left after six months. What made you leave? COVID, uh, after the circus shut down, I had no other option but to find other work. Vermont was not, you know, I lost my job, school's down, 
it's like where do we go now and our lease was up in august so we actually left in march and we're still paying until august but we went to uh, alaska um, where they her business was actually shut down there was no tourism that year so i really didn't even get to to work tourism in with the sled dog industry but i i worked with the sled dogs um, and i really got to kind of see how they how they work they got to run free there wasn't so much a training or a regimented thing it was more like a summer vacation for the dogs which is really nice to see and and watch the dogs be dogs and they're really fascinating you can learn so much from any dog your dog at home you know if you watch their behavior they tell you everything absolutely everything they are communicating with their eyes with their ears with their tail with their body with their lips with their tongue everything they're giving you cues and it's all a matter of how you read those cues you know and uh, working with with 30 to 40 dogs at once really taught me how to read those cues because dogs tell you what they want they tell you what they need flat out and they want they're, they're needy man they're needy they always want attention food attention you know? yes it's, absolutely but they're really loving they're really loyal I've never seen such a a compassionate work ethic between human and animal than I've seen with dog and human. When you put eight dogs on a sled and you say, all right, let's go, and they take off and they go quiet, they go to work, and they are just running, they are in their freedom, they are in their, even though they're, they're all working, they are working in a team, they're working in a unit, it's not just them in their head, you know, well, I don't know, I'm on my own. They work as a unit, and you are their leader, and they have to trust you. If they don't trust you, they will. They'll they'll mess around, and they'll you know kind of test you. They'll kind of see what you're made of. And I really had these thirty dogs in the beginning, especially to test me, because I was a newcomer. You know, they they really see what they can get away with. You know, oh if I if I if I kind of grumble and fight with this person, is he gonna come over and do anything about it? You know. Or if I uh, if I'm biting up on my house on my my house, is he gonna come over and correct me? So they will test you to really to see what you, what you're gonna do. And then after about three months, they know you. They know what your habits are. That's they because dogs spend a lot of time watching and learning. They don't talk. They don't spend enough. They don't you know they're not talking all the time. They're just observing and watching their environment and adapting to their environment. And so dogs adapt to their humans, to their people, you know, their home. I thought that was just one of the most fascinating experiences to go work with 40 dogs who are working animals, not just pets, you know, they were, you know, you get to love them and you get to they'll give you kisses and affection, but they work too and they work incredible. There's no other dog on planet earth that can do what those dogs were capable of doing. They're Iditarod brush mushing dogs. You know they can run a thousand miles in eight to nine days. It's there's no insane. other dog that can do that. And then if you keep feeding them, because they have an insane metabolism rate, where they can turn fats and proteins directly into energy. You and I, when we work out, we have to burn our carbohydrates and our our mm -hmm. sugars to be able to burn our fats and proteins. After the intense training with these dogs. They no longer need that. They, they can convert protein and fat into straight energy without the use of glycogen, starches and sugars. And if you just keep feeding them fats and proteins, which is their main diet, and you give them 10 to 12,000 calories a day, 
they can run another thousand miles in 10 days back. They'll bring you home. They're the most reliable source of transportation. You know, every like when in the 1960s and 70s, when the, the uh, what do they call them? Everybody has different names for them. Snow machines, snowmobiles. Yeah. When the Iron Dog came out, that's what they call it, because it took over dog sleds, but they were unreliable. Your machine breaks down in the middle of nowhere in the bush, it's not going to take you home. The dogs will get you home every single time. They were the most reliable source, still are to this day. You mentioned the eight dogs in a row just pulling you on the sled. Like that mm-hmm. seems very that image in my mind seems very primal. Like that is something Absolute, I would love yeah. to try. Absolutely. Would you say this is some sort of like a swarm intelligence where you are the leader and then they're just like all together coming together to form their intelligence, or do you see like? In, as they are pulling the sled, can you see the individual personalities come out? Absolutely. You see every, all eight dogs, all 30 dogs have different personalities that you have to attune yourself to as well. Um, you have to know their limits. You have to know their, what they're capable of. And you're not going to want to put a dog in a scenario or a situation where they're going to be uncomfortable or where you're going to see them fail. You are, in a sense, the leader who is observing all the personalities and all the traits and combining the team in an orientation that's going to give you the best success. So you have lead dogs, your two, which to say is your most intelligent dogs, but they are the dogs who know the commands, they know the trail, they are not really distracted, very focused, very determined. Sometimes you'll have dogs that you use as different lead dogs in different situations. So. There are sensitive leaders who are very in tune with the track and the trail. But if the trail is covered in a blizzard, you're not going to want to stick that very sensitive leader in the front. So you're going to put her right behind and you're going to stick your brawny, stubborn leader up in the front who's just going to trudge through that blizzard. So you put the different personalities where you need them at certain situational events. And that's your job as the musher to coordinate the team. And eight dogs is actually a, a pretty a medium-sized team when they start the Iditarod they start with 14 dogs and then what happens to the other six they just fall off they don't fall off but so say you have a dog that does get an injury uh, or you have a dog that goes into heat that sometimes where you have females in a team that go into heat at a very bad time and the males will uh, no longer do their duty and they'll be very focused and driven on mating instead of running so you'll at the next checkpoint, there's 21 checkpoints in the Iditarod, and you would leave your dog at the checkpoint with the vets. There's veterinaries stationed at every checkpoint, and you would leave your dogs with the vets, uh, and you would continue on the trail. So they don't then they are cared for while they're left behind, and then at the end of the race, they all get back together in the kennel, and you fly home with your dogs all together in the team. Would you say those are more intelligent than just a common dog you'd see in a household? That is a very relative t- question. As I dog, mean, yeah, yeah, specific de- to what they're doing, they're obviously more they intelligent. Are, they, they know what they're getting into. If I were to stick a Siberian Husky that's living here in Scottsdale into those conditions that they haven't seen before, sure, it's in their genealogy to be able to handle that condition, but they didn't grow up with it. They don't know that. They are not physically capable of doing that. And the Alaskan Huskies are very unique. They're mutts. Um, they're like a mixed breed of, you know, uh, Labradors, Retrievers, Setters. It was a big mix of dogs. 
and they're actually not even recognized by the AKC as a breed of dog um, because they're this mixed breed. They're, they don't have a set look to them. They all have, like, they could be white with blue eyes. Blue eyes is the trait of Siberian Huskies. These dogs, they have brown eyes. They can have all kinds of colored coats. They can have all kinds of different body styles, you know. That Siberian Husky has a very specific body style, specific coat style, specific eye color, you know, traits. The Alaskan Huskies, their trait is endurance. That's that's what they're bred for is the endurance. You're not, you're kind of breeding for intelligence. Yeah, and you're kind of doing that in any breed of dog. You don't want a, a, a dumb dog, you mm. know. All, all dogs that have been bred and, uh, um, and, come from working backgrounds. All dogs come from working backgrounds, um, whether they're hunting, whether it's running, whether it's uh, protection. They all come from different backgrounds where you are breeding for specific traits. Um, and intelligence is just a plus. And you stick your intelligent dogs up front because that's those are generally the ones you trust the most, other those smart ones, but they're also sometimes the most stubborn. The ones that are smart, sometimes you gotta watch out for because they will test you the most. Because they they're they know it's like a it's like a child. They'll just they'll test your, your boundaries, they'll test your corners, they'll question you, and you this is how it is. I mean that definitely makes some parallels to humans. Like yeah. the intel as intelligence rises, I feel like stubbornness rises as well. Like they're trying to just test you and size you up. But going back to intelligence, you kind of you didn't really answer. In terms of like interacting with humans, mm-hmm. would you like do you see that the Alaskan Huskies are more in, like I, the term intelligence is like very hard to define, but like do you see that they're more aware of themselves as opposed to household dogs? Hmm. I think I think they they grow up with a a different awareness than that of house dogs and it is more primal so in that regard they may be more in tune with their their instincts and their feelings and and we are giving them the capacity to do what they're they're meant to do so uh, I, I would I would say that they are more so intelligent than say your average house dog but what your house dog can learn is not uh different from what you can train an alaskan husky um alaskan huskies are very trainable but like for example when we were teaching that uh, or training them we don't train how to sit or down or stay um, you teach them to run and, and you keep the I'm conflicted with with saying that that Alaskan Huskies are more intelligent than than your average house dog, simply because that I, I think they're they're all equally intelligent. But you can train an Alaskan Husky to. I've seen I've seen sled dogs save people's lives where the musher is behind the sled unconscious and the dog is in a full out blizzard and the leader is capable of taking the musher home without commands, without any sort of leadership. It's his own intelligence taking him where he knows, what he knows. So you can teach your dog 
a lot of a lot of things. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of energy, and it takes a lot of consistency to make a dog intelligent. But I would say that all dogs are intelligent. Mm-hmm. I find it really fascinating. You hit on this already a little bit, but it's the idea that all dogs originated from like specific to their work and how every dog has evolved to excel at their job. Like these Alaskan dogs are mm-hmm. superior. Like you take another dog into this environment, they're going to die off and they can't even compare. But it's, it's really interesting to see that you have the Alaskan sled dogs, you have Siberian Huskies, you have guard dogs, all just all different things. It's really interesting to see how evolution takes its course. Absolutely. And how we have influenced that, that action. Mm-hmm. Um, dogs that are more water-resistant coats that go into the water and fetch the birds. Lab retrievers are like perfect example one you wouldn't expect poodles poodles are actually they were originally made for water bird retrieving waterfowl and now they're like a a, a, a princess pet you know but I, uh, I did not know that about poodles yeah funny. so but they were breeding four different things terriers all more the majority of terriers small terriers were all ratters they were meant to keep the varmint out of the 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 grain or the fields and they did it really well. I had a Jack Russell Terrier that used to tear apart families of rodents in our backyard. And she would be up till 2, 3 in the morning doing it. It was like that was her job. And dogs will give themselves jobs too. And sometimes it can be destructive. Sometimes, you know, you'll see dogs chew on, on socks or shoes and furniture counters. That is a result of them giving themselves a job hmm. that is not necessarily the best. But... They are designed, and if you give them the job, like cattle dogs, if you give the cattle dogs a herding opportunity, whether it's sheep, cattle, um, when you put them in that environment, even a cattle dog that has not ever seen that interaction, as soon as you put them into that instance, that event, they know exactly what to do. And they'll start doing it because that's part of their genealogy. That's part of their job that they know. It's just bred into them. Hunting dogs, they're they're bred to sit there, wait, wait, wait. Or if it's a more active, you know, boar hunters or hounds who are actively hunting and tracking, you want your dog to have a really good sense of smell. Hounds have some of the best sense of smell than any other dog. It doesn't make them more intelligent or better, but they just that is specifically designed for that line of work. And we've kind of separated them from their line of work by bringing them into the household and in in kind of this urban environment and sometimes I, th- I see a lot of people from coming from Alaska back to the city that a lot of people's dogs behaviors is a result of them giving themselves jobs that the people are not giving them which is interesting if you give your dog a job and especially if you look into the background of your dog and kind of work towards what's already ingrained in them you can see a lot of progression a lot of great uh overall health of the dog as well giving them an intrinsic responsibility of what they love to do and i feel like sometimes we take that away from them which is kind of sad uh i kind of already have an idea of what your answer is going to be to this question but i was having this debate with my friends yesterday about whether cats are smarter than dogs I am of the side that cats are smarter. I have neither a cat nor a dog, so I have no experience <laughs> with this, but I'm curious what you think. Okay. 
Oh, so cats are very independent. I think that what they learn is very, it's very specific to them. They're not necessarily learning um, from, say, other cats, for example. So their behaviors and their intelligence is their own. Dogs can learn from their environment and from other dogs and other things. So, and I don't really see cats, you know, in communal groups. You do, you know, they, they, they can coincide. But I see cats as being very independent. Like, even when you're living with a cat, they'll go, hey, come here, kitty, 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 tail up in the air, walk away. Like, they just, they're very, very aware that they can, uh, they can do that. Dogs are just, they're always, they're, dogs can sometimes be very blind in their affection. Like, they, some of them you'll see very cautious, and that's the personality's difference between dogs. Some of them are more cautious, some of them are more outgoing. It, it's just like humans, you know, there's the... Uh, the extroverts, the introverts, same thing in the dog and in the animal world, you know. There's the extroverts, the introverts. I think that's the same for cats, you know. There's the, the invert cats who just, like, want to hide on the bed and just, like, recluse. And then there's those super outgoing cats that are, like, come up to you and just, like, rub up on you. So, oh, I don't I, I think cats are, are probably more intelligent than dogs. Because dogs, they just... They, they do really silly things a lot of the time. Like, they're, they're just like little children. I'd say dogs are like little children. Cats are like teenagers. And in that, they have, they have just a couple years worth of, of life experience that just dogs don't have sometimes. I mean, that analogy really paints the picture because obviously with cats, they're kind of recalcitrant in that they do not like authority. Like, if you tell them yeah. what to do, they're not going to listen to you. Yep. Whereas with dogs, like, they're little toddlers. Like, you, you can... Tell them what to do for the most part. But do you think, going back to these sled dogs, do you think they exhibited any form of awareness, but like consciousness as well? That is a great question. Because you, you definitely were around these dogs very oh, frequently, yep. so I'm sure you had time to study them. I mean, I would sit there sometimes and, and just observe the yard um, and just watch the dogs interact amongst themselves in their own free time, what they did in their free time, and how they kind of organized themselves, and if you, if you want to say. There's like alert, you know, there's the alert dogs, there's the alert, there's a handful of dogs that are always aware of everything that's going on so that the other dogs can like take it, take it ease off, you know, they can just lay down. But there's always one or two dogs who's looking around. And they almost go in shifts. When one or two dogs isn't up and looking around, and when they're ready to go, there's two other dogs who are looking up, ready to go. They can lay their heads down. They they coordinate themselves, and they they are very aware of themselves. They were, uh, when it was 5 o'clock, food, every time, regardless. Like It, it was like a, a, it was a clock. It, it was an internal clock. I could be across the 100 acres, and I would hear the dogs going nuts, and I'm like, I wonder what's going on. You check your watch. Oh, it's 5 o'clock. They would let you know. Even though they're not sitting there looking at a clock, you know, they were so, so aware of everything. When we were working in the yard, I mean, we would had to organize the yard a little bit where we would, you know, go with lawnmowers or weed whackers through the, through the pen. And um, some of the dogs would be very curious as to what this thing is, you know. And the weed whackers, some of them would be very scared. And those are the, you know, the introverts, the extroverts who just actually want to play with it. But the ones who were kind of more scared, you'd take the extra second 
and you'd turn the machine off, you'd set it down next to them and they would sniff it and, oh, okay, they're good, you know, and you'd move on to the next thing and, and sure enough, they're not afraid anymore. So the, there was certain awarenesses that you could see in them and you can like, you could read it, you know, oh, I'm scared or oh, I want to play out. You, know, you can absolutely read what they're feeling and what they're expressing. They, they were very human-like. I really felt like I was working with uh, a schoolyard full of children. It was a lot of fun. It's really interesting witnessing curiosity in non-humans or just the, like curiosity. And then on top of that, the social dynamics that they Absolutely. developed themselves. Absolutely. I worked raising three litters of pups because uh, at the kennel when I was uh, working in the tourism, some of the other kennels from around Alaska would send their puppies to Trailbreaker Kennel so that we could incorporate them into the tourism because we didn't, first of all, we didn't have any puppies that year. And you need puppies for tours because everybody loves puppies. And uh, you, you raise the puppies in this tourism industry so that they can get accustomed to people. You know, we'd handle them every single day. We'd handle their paws, their ears, you know, so that when we go to take them to the vet checks on races, you, the vets can check everything. They can do everything without having any problems. We, so we kind of accustom the dogs early to people that they're not familiar with, with, you know, a lot of handling. Um, pup, pup call. So we start doing recall training like it, like six weeks. As soon as, as soon as we can start getting them to, to like walk and kind of wander on their own when we have food. Pup, 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 puppies. We, that's the call to bring the puppies in. And that translates even to when they're older, when they're that's a 10 year old dog, you can still make that pup, 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 puppy call and they will come. And so you start ingraining that when they're like three to six weeks old. And then they have siblings and you, you see who's who's more extroverted and who's going to be maybe the potentially the good leader, you know, and who's kind of the, the wimpy guy, just, just a little sluggish and like, oh, very lackadaisical. They all have different personalities and that changes too. You know, at six weeks, they their personality changes from six months. When they're in six months, they're a totally different dog. And you, so you don't know what kind of dog you're really working with until they're like a year old. And then you see their personality. But it's you get to see it develop. That's really that fascinating. Really cool. It's like a, a sped up version of having a child. Like you get to see it in in a very short amount of time. It's mm-hmm. very cool. But to change gears here now a little bit, you mentioned a little bit about rock climbing. And you told me previously that you're into spelunking. Yes. I don't, uh, to me, I've never heard of that. So can you share a little bit about that and Absolutely. give a little background to it? So uh, spelunking is the, I wouldn't say it's the study, but it is the art of going underground. So there are communities in a lot of different states. Uh, most states have caves of some sort, whether it's limestone, whether it's volcanic caves. Um, and they have communities who go underground and map the caves take pictures of the caves to monitor the growth and decay of the caves. Sometimes NASA will coordinate with these people to go down into the caves to study some of the, uh, the extremophiles that live down and with no light and how, how is microbiotic life living down there and how could that correlate to life that lives out in outer space. So that was something that my dad worked with. He actually worked with uh, NASA and going down into Lechuguilla, which is one of the deepest places in North America that you can get. It's about a mile into the earth. And they're still mapping it. A huge cavernous expanse. You take four to five days to get into the cave. You're packing everything in, everything out, 
all your pee, all your, you're not just sitting there, you know, whizzing on your crystal formations that are, took thousands of years to grow. You are, uh, you're really careful because everything in the cave is made out of calcite. It is this crystalline formation. It looks like quartz, but some of it can be in super thin, like straws, or some of it can be like sand. Some of it can be like, uh, with popcorn, we describe these different formations, kind of how they look. Cave bacon, some of it just looks like bacon, but it's all calcium and calcite that forms from water. And of course, people, most people are familiar with stalactites and stalagmites, mm-hmm. those giant cones that come down and up from in caves. And that's the water formation. The water forms all kinds of other amazing formations that you wouldn't see anywhere else on earth but under the ground and i've had the opportunity ever since i was a little child my dad before i could even walk would just haul me down into a 30 foot drop into a cave and then my mom would put me in her backpack and we'd go caving and i would sit there in the backpack and i would just look at all the formations and then i grew up into it and then i walked into these caves and then i started rappelling on my own I actually had an accident in a cave where I fell down a crevasse. Um, it was a little pitch, a little 10-foot pitch where I had to climb. I reached up for my brother's hand, missed it, fell back into this dark cavern next to me. Scariest moment of my life. I was like 12 years old. I just knocked the wind out of me, though, and I climbed out of there and got back to the, to the car. But that crazy stuff underground. It's not for everybody, that's for sure. Uh, I know a lot of people are probably claustrophobic. Uh, if you're afraid of the dark, you know, tight spaces, there's there's squeezes where you definitely are, if you start hyperventilating, your chest starts to expand and then it even gets tighter in the already tight space that you're in, making your situation already worse. So you gotta have a really level head. Uh, you gotta have the right gear. Um, you gotta have the right people, the knowledge. But it's a, it was really a credible experience to grow up with that. You know, that's not something that everybody gets to do is, uh, is cave or rock climb. Um, I was on rope before I could walk. You know, my dad really immersed me. My mom and dad really immersed me in recreation, in animals and plants and geology. And it, as a result, it, kind of, it really uh, transformed me as into who I am today. Funny enough, um, going down in, into the ground and up into the rocks and climbing trees and doing all the going to sled, you know, going to Alaska and joining the circus has all come together to create who I am today. It seems to be all centered around just adventure. You, uh, yes. As I mentioned, the al- adventurous Alex Joaquim. But it's kind of funny. I was, as you're mentioning, you're your growing up and this is what you were doing at the age of 12. I was comparing that to what I was doing at the age of 12. I was playing video games, playing basketball. It's completely different. It's kind of funny to think like... That's not to say that I wasn't playing video games. I was actually a huge uh, PC gamer while all of this would happen. But like every weekend, we'd go caving or we'd go camping or we'd go up to the Grand Canyon. My dad actually owns a tour guide company and my mom owned a wedding business. So we would... My dad goes up to the Grand Canyon like minimum 100 times a year. And I would go up with him at least 50 of those times. So I would go see the Grand Canyon like every week or every month at least and then I'd come home and I'd go to school I went to, still went to high school I just played football and uh, uh, I played computer games and but the the adventurous lifestyle really I think overcame that that lifestyle because um, uh, computer games kind of got old I was actually really fascinated with some of your work 
in uh, how you were comparing life to a video game and with your past with video games. Um, I actually really uh, resonated with that because um, uh, I was kind of heavily addicted at one point and then at one point it just wasn't fun anymore. And then you incorporate what you've learned from video games and the life skills and the, and the, the level up, you know, the intelligence and the strength and the charisma. And you get to level up your skill points, you know. Go to circus, there's your circus skill right there, you know. You get to choose how you level up your character. I really in, intrinsically resonated with, with your work when you said that. Yeah, I mean, when I started to view my life as a video game, like, it just seems like there's nothing that I can't do. Like, the whole world is open to me. If I want to start a podcast, I can do that. If I want to pick up spelunking, I have no experience in that, but I'm going to level up, and I'll begin doing that. It's all about who you know. And now I know you. It's a perfect opportunity. Yes, let's, let's do it in the future. So with, uh, with the adventurous Alex Joaquin, what else, aside from spelunking, do you have in your adventure arsenal? Uh, if you're familiar with Havasupai, mm-hmm. uh, I've been down to Havasupai. It's a small village at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I've been there eight times. My mom and dad were actually married down there um, 27 years ago. And so Havasupai is a place that I've had the opportunity to go to that sometimes people either they don't get the opportunity to go to or you get the opportunity once in your lifetime to get to go down to this place. And I've got connections down in Supai, so I can go whenever I'd like, which is an amazing opportunity. And that was probably one of the most incredible places I've ever been. And it is still one of the highlights of my life is getting to go to this place. It's magical. It's actually currently under threat due to uranium mining. They have uranium mines placed all up along the Grand Canyon. And these uranium mines are tapping into the Colorado Plateau Reservoir. It's a, uh, not a reservoir. It is a aquifer that sits underneath the ground. And the uranium that they're pumping out is leaching into this water. And it's contaminating the water in the villages. It's contaminating the Colorado River, which is ultimately going to contaminate our water. Our canal systems that we have here in Phoenix, Arizona, it's routing water 332 miles away from the Colorado River down here. So what they're doing up there is going to affect us down here. And the people who have lived down in this village for thousands of years, um, that was their home. That was where they thrived. They would go down in the into the canyon in the summer and spring and harvest and grow crops. And then in the... Uh, in the wintertime and fall when it was cold, they'd go up and live on the rim for warmth where there was a lot of firewood and a lot of deer and game. So they lived this transitional lifestyle till about, you know, the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and they were some of the, the last tribes to be discovered because of how remote they were. They were literally in the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And they still live there. There's still seven to 800 people that live down there. and. It's a really incredible place if you ever get the opportunity to go. I hope it opens up soon because COVID, they've kind of closed uh, closed off business. But from what I hear, because I do have connections that um, they're moving forward to open up the village again. They're, they need to keep that tourism going because mm-hmm. that's a big source of income. 
You mentioned they're being threatened right now. Is this like a very severe thing or is it in just like a like a minor thing? Like this, is it- is, this is a very severe problem. Uh, the uranium mining is posing the threat to all of the water that is down in the canyon. Um, it's also posing threats to anybody who has wells up on the rim, you know, any of the ranches, anybody who's living on the Colorado Plateau is at risk. If they contaminate the water with uranium, a radioactive metal, uh, it's going to ruin it and it's going to be absolutely disastrous. And there's over a a hundred mines placed currently over the um, over the, the, the rim. And primarily there's one placed next to Red Butte, which is uh, a very sacred site to the Havasupai. That's where they believe uh, their creation story began. That's where the, their people came from. And there's a uranium mine not far from it, and they, they're adamant to get rid of it because it's, it's a threat. It's really sad to see just how these things are happening like just pure for the profits and they well, don't really care about yeah they don't really care about the previous history going on like the same thing happened in the amazon just the logging of the rainforest invariably it's going to affect the people living there all these different tribes it's it's really sad to see this very short-term mindset yeah what can you do you can speak your voice you can be heard that's what we're doing right Absolutely. now yes. you can bring the message out you know people uh, there are a lot of voices in the tribe who are adamant about this and putting it out there. One of the people I know, uh, I don't say her name. She uh, she's a member of the council at one point, and she's actually been to the White House and she's been to the government and she's made her case. Um, and her uncle was actually a huge advocate for the Havasupai tribe. He went forward to the to the White uh, to the White House and said, uh, "This is my home." This is where I this is where I came from. And they gave back the most land that they've ever given back to a tribe, they gave back to the Havasupai. Really? Yep. That's As awesome. a result of this man. He was a beautiful man. He actually did my baby blessing. He was a really spiritual, powerful, beautiful man. And uh, his his nep- or his niece as a result is also she's a very powerful, beautiful uh spiritual individual who I almost I view as a mother figure I, she actually lives in Carefree I go see her very often just go do projects for her that's awesome so throughout all of this that you've this experiences that you've gained what would you say is the most important like mantra of your life be ambitious never give up your dreams even if the dreams are crazy, you know, Albert Einstein had crazy dreams. He had crazy visions. Elon Musk has crazy dreams. He has crazy visions. But he's going to make them happen. They're going to make these things happen. And you can too. Everybody has the power and the capability to empower themselves to be ambitious, to dream, and to carry out those dreams. And uh, to not be afraid to try to do to take opportunities, to take risk, to see where the road takes you. I've learned a lot when you just go with the flow, go with the road and observe. And if you ever feel lost, if you ever feel scared, take a second stop, reevaluate, but push forward, always. Always keep the momentum going forward.
and it'll take you to incredible places and it will allow you to meet incredible people and there's always something you can learn from somebody in front of you you're never the smartest person in the room ever if you think you are you already have lost out on so much knowledge that is in the room because everybody has a wealth and a value of information in their head whether it's spelunking whether it's art whether it's computer engineering everybody has a specific skill set very similar to dogs like the way you tied that back and uh we tap into that mastery and we execute that mastery and we we tap into those around us who have the skills and the knowledge that we don't have so that we can get that knowledge because ultimately it really is about a sharing of of what it is that that we know because as much as we've advanced in the past hundred years with technology and everything you know all of this could be knocked out with a solar flare like that all the internet all the data everything's gone and that would be an extreme loss of knowledge and everybody would have to kind of start from scratch except for the books all the books are still there that's where the knowledge is held and that's where it started is uh is with books and i'm i'm always curious to know just how much knowledge we've lost over the years through from the indigenous peoples from the greeks from the romans from the egyptians how much history and knowledge that we've lost that we still have yet to gain but we, we can't because we think we know all this so be humble and uh and learn as much as you can and by learning you empower yourself never stop learning yeah that was very powerful one of the things you mentioned was that just continue pushing through that is one of the things like that was one of the ideas that so many people like lack that like they they, they experience some hardships like oh I, I can't can't move forward I'm just gonna sulk and I'm gonna sit here and do nothing like the idea of pushing through like anybody can push through anything they want like I can experience the worst time in my life it's gonna get over like it's gonna I'm going to move past that. I'm going to become, I'm going to adapt to it. I'm going to learn from it. Like just move, like continue pushing. That is, that is a very powerful thing. It's a very simple thing, but very powerful. You mentioned something, you mentioned a little bit about books. What are, are you a, are you a reader at all? Unfortunately, I really need to read more. But when I was a kid, uh, I really used to, to read a lot. I read in my I don't read enough books, but when I'm curious about something, I research it. I, or I use the internet. I use my dad. My dad has a library. So I'll, if I'm curious about caving insects, reptiles, whatever, I can go look for that information and I'll read up about it. I'll watch videos about it. So I do read a lot, but the, the reading isn't necessarily coming from a book. It's taking a lot of the information when you're curious about something and really just diving into it and trying to gain as much knowledge as you could. When I was a kid, I used to read a lot when I would I get books about reptiles. And even though, unfortunately, reptiles is not necessarily a, a knowledge that everybody finds valuable, but um, I have this crazy knowledge of snakes and, and, and reptiles and insects that is pretty cool. Like, 
but it took a lot of reading to get that knowledge and empower myself to know that where funny enough this is kind of very side related note but I had uh, a professor at my school who doesn't still does not know the difference between poisonous and venomous he was calling a rattlesnake poisonous and it absolutely drove me nuts let me just for myself so poisonous is when you insert it and venomous is just the touch of skin or is the other way around like venomous is it's the other way around, okay. Venom has to be injected into your bloodstream. Poison is oh, that's ingested. Okay. Yeah, I, I knew that. I don't know why I said that. It's kind of disappointing on my part, but hey, <laughs> we move past but it. But see, this is one of those things. And granted, it's not necessarily a knowledge that is really that important, but um, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. What, what, yeah. what is something that, in the entire scope of the world, what is something that you think that you find the most interesting? Hmm. I know this is a very tough question to ask because there's probably many different answers you can take. Mm-hmm. But just some of the knee-jerk reaction, what is your answer? The most fascinating thing on earth? Because you it's, seem to be very spread out in many different things. Oh, I'm yeah. curious what you think. I would say the, the most fascinating thing on earth is where we are right now. How we got here is probably one of the most fascinating things on earth is today's world there's never been a time like it you know and you have to live in the present you know it's a, I think the present is the most fascinating thing simple the present is the most fascinating thing there you go are you a spiritual man I'd say so yeah I my dad grew up religious uh, my mom was from Germany and she didn't really grow up religious. Um, but when my dad was in grade school, he looked at a book, a biology book, and he saw the fin of a dolphin, the wing of a bat, and the wing of a bird, and the hand of a human. And he saw that everything was the same. Everything. Just a little longer, a little, little tweaks here and there exactly the same that was when he was like all right maybe this is a little some of this stuff's a little hooey and there is some validity to the fact that we are all connected and that we are all we are all one thing you know the tree is this branch of life and we come from this branch of life and we see how things can come from certain things we see we are a uh an influence in it, you know, with the dogs and cats and, and horses and livestock in general. We can watch evolution happen. And he, when he saw that, he was absolutely like, all right, that's it. So he grew up religious, kind of transformed. My mom wasn't really religious. And they really embodied spirituality into me. And I think all walks of life are neither wrong or right. There is no wrong or right. But that everybody has something to learn from or has taken something from somewhere. It has all come from the same thing eventually. Like, it all came from one. And uh, that is definitely part of my spirituality belief. So I'd say I'm very spiritual. Tying what you said back into my previous question about what you think the most interesting thing is on the scope of the world... My answer to that question, it's kind of related to what you're saying, 
the idea of convergent evolution with in terms of intelligence with octopus and humans mm-hmm. like have you ever looked into octopus at all and they're fascinating they're so it's like it blows my mind just to see they are the, like in terms of intelligence they are the humans of the ocean and like they're just they're very independent but they like there's been there's a documentary on Netflix. You should definitely check it out if you haven't already seen it. It's called uh, My Octopus Teacher. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. Okay. That definitely it's, looks like I should look into I'll, that. I'll give you a little summary of it. It's really, it blew my mind watching it. There's this guy. He goes into the ocean. He swims deep into the ocean every day for a year. And Have you seen it? I've heard of the story, but I haven't seen the movie. This guy who goes down and he sees his octopus and it makes friends. They, yeah, they, they recognize become, they, each other. They become friends and then... I don't want to ruin it for you because it's like a very, like a very a beautiful story. So I don't want to ruin it anyway. But you can just see just the the progression of friendship, and it's crazy to see that this can be replicated with octopus. Like obviously you can have friends. There's a progression of friendship through humans. Maybe even so with dogs. It's probably not the same level, but with octopus, they are in the water. Like they are just so far removed from us and dogs and cats and mm-hmm. monkeys and all that yet they still have this level of intelligence it blows my mind to think about fish fish kind of seem like they're brainless like they're dumb i had a couple fish when i was growing up i actually had a menagerie of animals i cared for 40 different animals fish frogs centipedes skin snakes scorpions tarantulas you name it i had it but I'd watch my fish with their different personalities and they clock on routine. They would sit there and they'd watch you in the room and they were like, what are you doing? They were very personalized. They had character. It was like, it kind of blew my mind because, you know, I used to have goldfish growing up and definitely goldfish were like, they seem so brain dead. But like, there's a lot of animals out there who are really intelligent and they use their environment and they even will watch other things do certain things and just mimic it a lot of life is mimicry and that is how we even see this in our society and in our culture we mimic things uh, when we're growing up we mimic our dad we mimic our mom we we do the, all of this to learn things and uh and octopus i think are master manipulators of their environment you know they can hide inside of a little clamshell and they can they can really manipulate things and see a, a creative way or a creative problem-solve way to work around a situation. All animals possess capabilities of problem-solving, hands down. Whether they have the means of solving that problem, maybe not. Some animals have better means of solving certain problems. And like, for example, uh, crows and their beaks, that they have structured beaks so that they can manipulate certain things. Not to say that finches can't, but finches don't necessarily, uh, they haven't seen that before. Crows, they, I'm sure that this intelligence has come from a long line of intelligence that was once observed. So everything has once been observed and then repeated. And that's what we see today. That's evolution, if you have it. Evolution at its finest. mimicry. Yes. Mm-hmm. And survival. Last question, because I know you got to leave soon. It's going to be a tough one. I want you to think about this. Okay. What to you is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of us being here? Would you like a scientific explanation? No, I want the, the Alexander answer. 
Because you can obviously say, oh, yeah, we're here to reproduce. <laughs> reproduce. That's, nah, I don't want to hear that. Give me what you think. In this day and age, everybody is intrinsically searching for what I want to say is companionship. What is love? What is family? What is community? So what I think the meaning of life is in regard to human existence is family and that of community. So now there's this instance that comes up with family and that not everybody likes their family. And there are definitely individuals in my family who I don't, who I don't think are, uh, they're not necessarily the best people to learn from or they're not necessarily the best people to be around or you don't want to be around them. And you don't get to choose your family, unfortunately, but you do get to choose your community. And you get to choose who you bring into your world and into your life and and who influences you. And I think that's what life's all about, is creating a community of people who love and support one another, who are not divided, who are not searching for problems in, in terms of drama from one another, but can rather coincide in one consistent dream. And everybody has different dreams, of course, and it's hard to accommodate to everybody's dream, but everybody in the community should be able to support everybody's dreams. So I think the meaning of life is searching for the best community that you absolutely can, who loves and supports you in everything that you do so that you ultimately can live and be the best person that you can possibly be. A beautiful way to end that. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Ethan. Before we go our separate ways, I would like to share a quote by Hunter S. Thompson. Life should not be a journey to the grave with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body, but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. If you like this podcast, please give my channel five stars on your preferred podcasting platform. Thank you for tuning in and until next time.